This is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update Podcast. This is part of an ongoing series featuring critical insights from the physicians and healthcare professionals on the front lines of the pandemic. Hello, this is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update video and podcast. Today, we're joined by Dr. Alex Callen, Chief of the Prevention and Response Branch in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the CDC in Atlanta about the importance of infection prevention and control and what physicians need to know about updated guidance in this area. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. Uh, We know that infection uh, prevention and control or IPC has always been critical in healthcare settings, but uh, uh, Dr. Callen, why don't you start by talking about what did the pandemic teach us about new things about IPC? Right. Well, I think, the, as we all know, the pandemic has just put unbelievable stress on the healthcare system. And I think we've seen how central a role IPC has played and can remain necessary to play in preventing the spread of diseases in these healthcare settings. So, for example, we've seen how important uh, it is with regard to HAIs. During the pandemic, we've seen huge increases uh, in HAIs and rollbacks of progress that we've made over the last 10 years. We've seen uh, health equity issues with uh, despair, you know, disproportionately affected populations continuing to be affected by uh, by the disproportionately by the pandemic. So I think again, just really shows the central role of IPC across the board uh, in preventing uh, in transmission of pathogens and protecting healthcare personnel. So in other words, we're going to add this to the list of uh, all the things that the pandemic made worse and more complicated. Um, It's so important, in fact, that uh, last month, the administration announced a $2.1 billion investment to improve infection prevention and control activities across U.S. public health and healthcare sectors. Let's talk about, you know, what is that going to enable you to do? And, you know, what were those gaps that need to be filled? Right. Really excited about the funding. I think this will really give us a way to move forward to increase capacity, resiliency for IPC, both in public health, uh, health departments, and also in individual facilities. The other nice thing we get from this funding is actually the ability to support some clinical activities in nursing homes, which have really been uh, uh, affected by the pandemic, and really has the potential beyond COVID to allow us to impact some of those uh, HAIs that I talked about that, that have gotten a lot worse during the pandemic, and really kind of reinvigorate our prevention efforts. And a big part, too, I, I imagine, is, uh, you know, building awareness, uh, engagement with an updated kind of set of IPC guidance for healthcare settings. You know, why, why update this right now uh, at this point in the pandemic? Right. And, you know, I think we've tried to make the IPC guidance kind of a living document during this whole process. I mean, obviously, COVID is new. We didn't know about a year and a half ago. We've learned a tremendous amount. And as we learn things, we have to update the guidance. I know that's frustrating for providers, you know, trying to keep track of all the changes, et cetera. So the good news is for this update, not a lot of huge substantial changes. What we're really trying to do is consolidate, simplify the guidance, make it easy to find the things that you need to find, provide the general concepts and let you apply it to your specific setting. So so there's also some resiliency built in to try and you know, make it easier to, to, for the guidance to change as the situation changes as well. But again, not huge substantial uh, recommendation changes in this guidance. I think that is probably one of the things that we've learned through this pandemic is, yeah, you know, when it is new, 
you're learning a lot more along the way and you need a foundation basically to make sure that you can update folks as, as that learning occurs. What in your mind are the most important things uh, that you want physicians to know about this update? Right, and probably the, the key most important thing is where do I find the information that I need? And, and during the, the pandemic, we've had probably about 10 or 15 different IT healthcare guidance documents. We've rolled that back and scaled it to just down to three. There's our general IPC guidance where you go if you need to ask general questions about what should I be doing for infection control in my particular setting. It's applicable across all healthcare settings. The second is what we kind of call our occupational health guidance. So if you have questions about healthcare worker return to work or exposures or things like that, that's where you go. And then last for folks who work in nursing homes, there's a specific nursing home document that has a few extra uh, recommendations above and beyond what's contained in the IPC guidance. So hopefully that's a lot simpler, more consolidated, easier to find the information you need. Where, where exactly would a physician find out, uh, find these documents? So all available on cdc.gov. Um, and if you look for the coronavirus section, you click on the section for healthcare workers, there's a section on clinical and there's a special section just on uh, infection control. It's all right there. So you mentioned before, not a huge amount of uh, changes, but can you summarize you know, what was updated and what wasn't? So let me quick start with the things that didn't change. So no changes to personal protective equipment recommendations for people caring for people with SARS-CoV-2 or suspected SARS-CoV-2. No huge changes to managing healthcare personnel exposures, return to work, all that kind of thing. Uh, of not any really substantial changes to screening people before they present either healthcare workers or visitors or patients when they come to, to um, healthcare settings. So again, the core recommendations pretty much are, are remaining the same. What actually then uh, you know, did change? Right. So great question. So the, uh, the main, there's a couple things that changed slightly. So let me first start with source control, because I think that's a, a, a thing that's uh, very complicated and confusing and has led to lots of confusion. So when I say source control, I mean the use of a face mask or something like that to cover a device to cover your nose and mouth to prevent the spread of respiratory droplets. Um, there's lots of things that are acceptable uh, for that. Again, the idea is to protect yourself and also to protect people around you. People can use face masks, they can use N95 respirators. Generally haven't recommended cloth face masks for patient facing healthcare personnel, just because they're not PPE and it's, you know, if you need PPE, it's hard to switch back and forth. But again, uh, that, that's one of the key areas uh, for change. Medicine doesn't stand still, and at the AMA, neither do we. AMA members are physicians like you who are shaping the future of medicine. Become a member today and join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. You know, maybe this is moot, but let me just ask, are there any instances where fully vaccinated healthcare personnel can choose not to use source control? Yeah, so again, uh, there are, uh, let me take a step back and just say, for source control, it's generally recommended for everybody in a healthcare setting. That's different than the community, and I think that's where a lot of the confusion has come about. Um, when the, when the recommendations got uh, made for community settings about not using vaccinated people, not needing healthcare, but not needing source control, I think people got a lot very confused and thought, thought that applied to healthcare and it, it never really did. Um, 
Why are they different for healthcare settings? Well, again, we try to be more conservative in healthcare settings with much of our guidance, just because it's a critical part of our infrastructure. There's lots of patients there at very high risk uh, for severe outcomes. So we try to make it generally um, more conservative. To answer your question, yeah, there are, generally they revolve around two things, vaccinated healthcare personnel and areas with low to moderate transmission. And in those particular circumstances, there may be situations where you, you may not need to use source control for healthcare personnel. So uh, I imagine that uh, that is more detailed or covered in more detail in your guidance? Yeah, exactly. I can give you one example. I mean, I think the, the specific situation that we often think about is healthcare personnel who are either not in patient-facing positions, billers or coders or things like that, or if you're in a break room that's uh, not, uh, uh, patients aren't allowed in or in a meeting. Uh, if people are all vaccinated and you're in an area with low to moderate transmission, healthcare personnel could choose not to wear a face mask. There's exceptions to that. But again, uh, and which I'd refer you to the guidance for, but in general, um, that, that might be an area where it's acceptable. Again, takeaway point is for people in a healthcare setting, everybody, healthcare workers, patients, residents, regardless of vaccination status, uh, source control is still recommended. Okay, so we've covered source control. Let's, uh, let's uh, turn to the subject of testing. Um, can you talk about the current recommendations for COVID testing among healthcare personnel and any updates in that arena? Yeah, so again, key point here, testing is really recommended and prioritized for people with symptoms, even very mild symptoms. We've been involved in lots of outbreak where you know the original starting person thought they had allergy for two or three days and turned out to have COVID. So even mild symptoms should be tested. Healthcare personnel with, with higher risk exposures or patients or residents with close contacts should be tested. This is another area where we differ slightly from the community, um, which again, for the reasons I mentioned, should be tested immediately. And then again, five to seven days later, the one caveat we added there is generally the first test shouldn't, should be after two days after the exposure, just to give people a, a chance to um, let the, uh, the test become po uh, positive, obviously. And then last but not least, there's this thing that we call expanded screening testing. What that is, is testing asymptomatic, non-exposed people. Uh, only recommended really right now for nursing homes. Um, but again, the uh, frequency with which uh, that is recommended is, has changed slightly, and I'd refer you to the guidance for that. Generally, that can be applied to other settings, but hasn't been uh, for the most part, and, and hasn't generally been something that we've recommended and continue not to recommend for patients or residents outside of an outbreak situation. How about uh, and beyond the testing part, has anything changed with the rules about quarantining? Right, yeah. So the only thing that changed there is, is fairly mi minor and that's to try and align everybody together. So we've had a recommendation for healthcare personnel uh, that were vaccinated that they didn't need to quarantine after exposure. And that's obviously consistent with the um, community guidance. And now we've just added residents and patients to that. So a fully vaccinated resident or patient who hasn't a contact still needs source control, still mm -hmm. needs to be tested, doesn't need to quarantine. Okay. You mentioned the, the you mentioned this uh, aspect of community transmission levels, uh, and I'd like you to talk a little bit more ab about the importance of that and how emerging variants like Delta variant, for instance, might impact these recommendations. Yeah, so this is the flexibility that I, I mentioned that we've tried to add. So community transmission seems to be a big driver of what happens in healthcare. So if you have a lot of community transmission, you start to see cases in healthcare settings. So we've tried to add community transmission levels 
as a way to tier the recommendation. So if you're in an area with lots of community transmission, the recommendations may be more robust. If you're in areas with lower transmission, you might be able to back those down. And we think, as we've seen with Delta, where obviously it came in for whatever reason, increased transmissibility, maybe some vaccine uh, efficacy issues, we've seen increased transmission. You know, same would go in the future. New variants uh, could come along that could affect that, could change the situation, and you can apply the community transmission levels to your specific setting, your particular area, uh, to be able to tier the recommendations uh, in your specific facility. Dr. Cowan, uh, this, this is, uh, you know, important news that you want to get to the medical community. Any other key things uh, you want to leave folks with out there in regard to this news? Yeah, a couple things. Just uh, first, uh, where do I find the community transmission data? If you actually look on the CDC website under the COVID data tracker, you can actually look it up for your specific community. So, um, you know, I refer you there and, and you can see what category you are from low to high and tier your recommendations. I think the other thing I wanted to emphasize is that uh, CDC did still, despite the updates, continues to stress vaccination, testing, uh, source control, and the use of PPE to try and prevent the spread of SARS-CoV-2 in healthcare settings and protect our, our patients and our incredibly valuable uh, healthcare personnel that have just done such incredible work during the pandemic. Dr. Callan, thank you so much for sharing this important information. And again, uh, you can find out more details about the guidance on the CDC uh, website. Uh, that's it for today's COVID-19 update video and podcast. For resources on COVID-19, go to ama-assn.org slash COVID-19. Thanks for joining us today. Please take care. Subscribe to other great AMA podcasts available wherever you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.